Hello, and welcome to the Chemistry at University podcast. This is a series aimed at sixth form students in the United Kingdom who are studying A-level chemistry and want to gain an insight into what it is like studying chemistry at university. We're now on to our last two episodes, and in these, we're going to focus on physical chemistry. If you're not familiar as to exactly what physical chemistry is, a good generalisation is that many of the mathematical concepts that you cover at A-level will be physical chemistry. For example, thermodynamics, kinetics and spectroscopy are all classed as physical chemistry. In my last two episodes, I'm going to be interviewing Professor Judith Howard, who is a hugely influential professor in the field of crystallography. In this episode, we shall speak to her about the background to her illustrious career. Later in this episode, I'm going to cover the concept of surface tension, which is a physical chemistry concept that you might study on an undergraduate course. In the next episode, I shall then be talking to Professor Howard about how crystallography works and where she thinks the field might be going in the future. As always, each episode has a PDF handout associated with it, and this can be found in the episode notes. Physical chemistry, and in particular the concepts we cover today, are best explained with the use of diagrams, so I highly encourage you to have this in front of you as you're listening. Now, before we start the interview with Professor Howard, I want to give you a quick overview as to what crystallography is, as it is a field you are unlikely to have met at A-level, despite the huge influence it has had over our lives, and over the chemistry you're learning today. Now, many solid materials are made up of crystals, that is, they're crystalline. If you think of grains of salt, which is sodium chloride, or sand on a beach, which is silicon dioxide, these materials are made up of tiny, small crystals, so so think of those grains of salt or those grains of sand. Within these crystals, there's a regular array of atoms, so think back to, for example, the lattice in sodium chloride that you'll be familiar with from GCSE. The actual structure of these atoms and the way they're arranged is very difficult to determine, but it provides us with lots of useful chemistry about the compound. So the atoms are much smaller than the wavelengths of visible light, so we can't observe them with microscopes or visible light. Even the most sophisticated microscope ever designed simply cannot view atoms because they are so much smaller than the wavelength of light. Thus, instead, we use x-rays. Yes, the very same x-rays that we use in hospitals, because the wavelength of x-rays is very similar to that of the size of atoms. We'll be discussing more about the mechanisms of how crystallography works in the next episode, so if you're interested in knowing more about how it works, I would encourage you to listen to that. However, for this episode, where we're more speaking about Judith's career and her background, what you need to know is that crystallography is a technique where we determine the arrangement of atoms within a crystalline solid. Again, a great example of this is table salt, sodium chloride. And I've shown the lattice array of that in figure one just for for a quick reminder. This is the kind of information that we obtain from crystallography. Now that I've introduced you briefly to what crystallography is, let's meet Professor Judith Howard, who's one of the world leaders in this field. I'm here today with Professor Judith Howard, who is a professor at Durham University, who leads the crystallography group here at Durham. She has co-authored over a thousand publications, which have been cited over 45,000 times, is a fellow of the Royal Society, and is widely seen as one of the leading crystallographers in the world. Hello, Judith. Hello, Max. So in today's episode, firstly, we're going to have, have a look over your career. 
and your background. And then we're going to have a look at your research and the field of crystallography in general, which I have to say is a really fascinating area of chemistry and science that I've really enjoyed learning about over the last few days whilst preparing for this. Um, so I think just to start, could you please give me a brief outline of your career from, from where you left school up, up until where you are now, please? Yes, I left school, um, which was in Salisbury. I went to Bristol University as an undergraduate in chemistry. Um, from there, I went to Oxford University to study for a DPhil with Dorothy Hodgkin. And um, from then, sorry, from Oxford, I went back to Bristol um, as a postdoc, stayed there a few years, then I became a staff member. And some 20 years later, I think it was, I left Bristol to come to Durham. I've been here nearly 30 years now. Um, and I was appointed to the foundation chair in um, crystallography here. Um, so I was the, I was the first, first professor in this particular um, position. So sort of just building on that, um, you mentioned there you were lucky enough to work with um, a very prominent scientist for your PhD, Dorothy Hodgkin, who is uh, some of our listeners might know was um, the UK's first female Nobel Prize winner. Um, so many of our listeners might be only a few years away from working with very prominent scientists such as yourself as master's students. So I was just wondering if you could tell us a bit about how you feel working with such an influential scientist has Im influenced and impacted your career and your research interest as, as time has gone on. Can I just minor correction there, Max? Dorothy, in fact, is our only female Nobel laureate um, in this country. There have been something like 29 Nobel Prize winners in crystallography, uh, many in the biological field, not entirely, some in the chemical field. Uh, and I think that's quite a good record. Um, and the UK does have a large percentage of that, those 29. Dorothy was amazing. I was really lucky to get that position. I'd been interviewed for a scientific position at um, the Atomic Energy Authority in Harwell. And one of the people who interviewed me had been working with Dorothy on the neutron study of vitamin B12. And the, the um, student, if you like, he was a mature student who was working between the Atomic Energy uh, Centre and, and Oxford, um, was doing a defil with Dorothy. And so it was decided I'd try and do the same, uh, working between Dorothy and Harwell, um, working on the neutron study of insulin. And that's really what I went to Oxford to do. But in point of fact, I never did do that because we never had crystals large enough. I mean, if you imagine that a grain of salt or a, a large crystal would be a little tiny crystal of um, regular sugar. But for in those days for neutrons, you needed something not exactly as large as a cube of you know, uh, a sugar lump, but you read by, by um, magnitude, you needed a very large crystal to work with neutrons. And it was just impossible to get insulin to grow that large. I did do some biological molecules, but I almost became a physicist. I was writing code, I was developing methods, I built instruments, um, and I looked at very small molecules in extremely fine detail. And that was what I was doing for my DPhil, but it did me take me into the world of neutron diffraction which is obviously using the same sort of theory as X-ray diffraction, but there are subtleties of why you would use neutrons when you wouldn't use X-rays. And, and that really has stayed with me all my career. And I've, I've used the two methods um, synchronously really. But working with Dorothy was absolutely amazing because 
it was only a few years, two, three years before I went to Oxford that she'd won the Nobel Prize. And of course, she was a mecca for people in the world to just come and visit Oxford, visit Dorothy. She was extremely well known. She was a fantastic supervisor. And it was I was able to meet loads and loads of people who became friends in the crystallographic world, some of whom I still know. Uh, many, of course, no longer with us, but it was a really fascinating time to work in such an area. I wasn't in Oxford labs all the time because I was doing my neutron work at Harwell, which is about um, 15, 20 miles out of Oxford. Uh, but anyway, it was it was amazing. And I think well, the, the influence is almost immeasurable. I mean, just what she gave me through her own character, the people I met, the, the tuition, uh, the opportunities to be in Oxford and to meet people and to do things there. Um, and I think, you know, she just opened doors that were just, um, well, I don't know if I'd stayed in Bristol to do a PhD, where would I be now? I've got no idea. You can't cross those, you can't get to the same crossroads twice as it were. Um, and I think one of the other things about Dorothy's lab was it was highly international. There are also quite a lot of women there. There are, in general, in crystallography, a large number of women, working students and so on. Uh, one's always asked why. And I think it, it stems from the very beginning of the subject when some of the pioneers, the, the two Bragg's father and son, Max Perutz, many others, uh, uh, J.D. Bernal Sage was another. He, They were very welcoming to women to work with them because of the way the methods worked in those days. It was a new subject that they, they weren't competitive in terms of uh, male sparring, if you like, you know, it's my subject, it's my subject. Um, anyway, we won't get into all that, but, um, and women have been in the subject right from the beginning of the field, which is only just over a hundred years ago. And so it was, it was an international lab, it was friendly, it was sharing, um, you helped each other because the experiments and collecting the data was much, much longer, especially in the biological areas. And so you needed to work together. You, you, today, the, the speed at which we uh, console structures is amazing, but then it was much slower. And I think that sort of international feel of sharing, caring, I think that stayed with me. I've always had a fair number of women in my group, very often 50%. Um, I've had a lot of international collaborators. I've had people visiting me into the lab from all over the world. And I too have traveled the world to go and see friends and to, to visit new people and to do experiments because neutron experiments I've performed in France, the States, this country, um, synchrotrons as well. So it's, you know, it's just been an open book, really, and exciting. I think a great example, um, you, you mentioned how many influential women have been in the field. And one I um, have heard from sort of several of your things you've done before is Kathleen Lonsdale is another great example. Um, you know, many of our listeners right now will have recently heard about benzene for the first time. And, you know, how do we know that was flat? It was, was in fact her, her work that, um, that led to that. So I think that's just a, a really interesting example. Um, so, so just, just building on that, um, you know, how, how, how have, have you influenced the career of your master's students? Obviously, you've gone on from having an influential supervisor yourself. Um, you know, how, how I think a big theme in this podcast series has been we, we've seen master's students actually really influencing their group's research. So, so do you have any examples of how maybe master or PhD students, how, how you've influenced their research and maybe their careers? Well, I like to think that the, the masters that have worked with me in their final year projects, and I've always had a fair number, um, 
they've, first of all, they've enjoyed it. And I've also had students who have said to be uh, somewhat weaker, um, but they get interested, they get fascinated, they put a lot more effort and energy into it, and they come out with a much better degree. Okay, that's not guaranteed. Um, But if if you have a batch of, let's say, you know, six master's students in any one year, which is quite a lot of um, supervision, but you can't expect them all to be going to get first-class degrees, but they all seem to enjoy it. And, and very often, as I say, some of the people who are predicted to get low degrees actually put so much into it. Um, it doesn't just reflect in the marks they get for their final year thesis, but it reflects in their general attitude to work and how they do in their degree. So I think that's part of an influence, but I think the the way in which I ran the lab, which was largely not too dictatorial, giving people a chance to do their own thing. I mean, everybody has a project to do, but it's flexible. It doesn't mean if you if something goes wrong in week one, you can't get it right and do something else that's interesting. You have to be flexible. You have to be inventive. You have to, um, you know, as it were, think outside the box. And I think and I've had a lot of students who've gone on to stay in crystallographic fields not necessarily the same one as my own, but working at different levels in in industry, um, in universities, people who've got academic jobs. Uh, I've had a lot of students from abroad as well. Um, And I think the fact that they've stayed in academic life is nice for me, but it's not essential. They've been well-trained as science students. And after all, the um, chemistry graduates are extremely popular. Um, I mean, I say popular, it's, they're very welcome in jobs, no matter what they are. They don't have to be straight in the chemistry uh, industry area, but they are trained to be numerate, to be able to think on their feet, uh, solve problems. Now, it may not feel like that when you're a student, that's what you're being trained to do, but it, it becomes automatic. And so that any undergraduate in chemistry could be trained to be a crystallographer if they were at all interested. Um, yes, it's a highly mathematical subject, but today there's so much software that helps you. You don't have to go deep into the topics of, of uh, the depths of maths unless you want to. Um, but I think um, I like to think I've helped people. I've been supportive um, when they've had rough patches. I've been supportive references, finding them grants, finding them interesting things to do, finding them bursaries to go traveling, those sorts of things. But it, it all helps to make the group um, sort of a happier place to work um brilliant thank you so i think um the the last thing on 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 this section we'll we'll cover is um if you could just give me an overview of what some of the standout moments and standout discoveries and scientific discoveries that uh, that you've made that just sort of really show how exciting both chemistry and the wider field of crystallography can be well, I suppose in a way, the very first structure I solved when I was an undergraduate was exciting because um, we didn't have the modern uh, instrumentation we have now. I'd had to take lots and lots of X-ray photographs, um, make uh, eye estimation of their intensities. I mean, if you think of a photograph that's got zillions of spots on it and they go from very black to pale gray almost, and you have to make estimates of their, their intensity by eye. Um, which took quite a long time. And then when you start building the model from the uh, calculations that you do, and as the atoms sort of appear almost by magic, it's just very exciting. And that really doesn't go away when you've done hundreds of structures. I mean, it is still exciting to be the first person that sees the shape of the molecule emerging from the maths and the maps that you're looking at. We look at uh, density maps. 
Um, and of course, today, in those days, it was much, much slower, but today it's, it, it's, it's not quite instantaneous, but you can collect data in minutes rather than days and weeks, and you can uh, solve the structures in seconds. We've written software for doing that in the small company I have. And it's, that stays exciting. I've done some really interesting work where I've worked with highly unstable chemical compounds where I've had to literally work in a cold room at about minus 10 wearing hat gloves and everything to try and keep the uh, small crystals alive um, with added gases because they, they were sensitive and then being able to work with that at very low temperatures and that's something else I've developed as instrumentation to work at low temperatures partly because you can then study you can well originally I wanted to do it to be able to match neutron diffraction experiments and then I could explore much, much more detail of the molecules in the interatomic um, uh, density space. But also it enables you, the, the instrumentation will enable you to study compounds which are liquids at room temperatures and even gases if you take temperature down low enough. Uh, another way of making liquids to become crystals is to increase the pressure, but that can be done at ambient temperatures. It, it's not easy, it's, it's not straightforward. Um, and so that there've been, times when I've worked with very unstable materials and I've been excited to actually keep them alive as it were long enough to get a full molecular structure. Because, the, well, I'll explain later the methods, but so there've been a lot of those instances, I think developing, develop, developing instrumentation that enabled me to do experiments you couldn't otherwise do um, has been a large part of what I've done. And these aren't instruments that you can get enough money from grants to buy off the shelf. You, literally have to put them together. Well, I don't put them together. I have the ideas and, and um, I know the people who can, I know the bits I want. I know somebody who can do it. So there've been lots of um, compounds like that. And at one time, one of the unstable ones I'm talking about, um, when I worked in Bristol with Gordon Stone, um, very well-known organometallic chemist in his day, he, he did a lot of platinum chemistry. And a lot of this was based on the fact that he made unstable molecules, which you could use in situ, you could use in, in solution, but the ligands would disappear off where they would become, if you like, unconnected to the platinum atom, which left you with a, what was known as a bare platinum. And then that was highly reactive to go on doing more and more different exciting experiments. So then it was my job to look at the samples that had been made by these methods, um, and also to look at the original compounds which were unstable. Um, I don't know if that sounds exciting, but it was. <laughs> I think it does. It's uh, We've had some really interesting um, sort of stories of research so far on this. And I think I have to say sitting in a sort of hat and gloves in minus 10 definitely has to be one of the more, more, more out there ones. <laughs> okay, so we're just going to take a break from that interview. And we're going to cover a physical chemistry concept that you might cover at undergraduate level. And that is surface tension. So to start with, I want to give you a visual illustration of what surface tension is. So if you look at figure two in your handout, you'll see two examples of items that are, that are sitting on the surface of water. So you'll see there's a paperclip that is, isn't sinking and a water strider that is quite literally walking on water. Um, also in figure three, you'll see a rather peculiar photo of a swimmer who almost appears to be wrapped in water. Now, now you might have seen some of these these phenomena before and wondered what what 
cause them? Well, well, in both cases, it's, it's what we call surface tension. So we're now going to just very briefly go over the concept of surface tension and, and how it occurs. So let's start by thinking of the intermolecular forces between water molecules. So you'll have learned at A-levels how in water that there are two types of intermolecular forces operating. There's hydrogen bonding and there's London dispersion forces, which are also sometimes referred to as van der Waals forces, depending on your teacher and your course. Now, if you need a reminder as to what hydrogen bonding and London dispersion forces are, there's a summary in box one of the handout, just, to, just if you need a little bit of revision. These are called cohesive forces because they bring the water molecules together. So the water molecules are attracted to each other. So let's now think about water particles in a cup of water. So most of the molecules will be surrounded on, on all sides by other water molecules. Uh, we call these molecules the, the bulk water molecules. So that is any molecule of water that isn't on the surface. You can see a visualization of this in figure four. Now, if you think about a water molecule at the surface as opposed to in the bulk, it is not completely surrounded by other water molecules. It's surrounded on, on the surface by air. So it's only surrounded by other water molecules on three sides. This means that these surface water molecules form stronger attractions with their neighbors on the surface. And again, figure four sh shows this really well. So the water molecules on the surface are more strongly attracted to each other than the water molecules in the bulk are. So here's just another way of thinking about that. So each water molecule can cling on to the other water molecules with a certain amount of force. If it has to cling on to four other water molecules, it will have to divide that force over four water molecules. If it only has to cling on to three water molecules, as is the case in the, in the visualization in, in figure four, then that force is only going to be divided over three water molecules. And hence the force at which that surface water molecule is clinging on to those three other water molecules is stronger than the bulk water that has to cling on to four water molecules. So the result of this is that a, a skin forms on the surface of the water, which explains the phenomena discussed previously. Finally, if you look at figure five, you'll see how a molecule of water in the bulk feels no net force as the intermolecular forces exerted on it are equal in all directions. They balance out. However, for a surface molecule, because there is no force acting from above, there is a net force pulling it inwards into the bulk of the water. This net inward force is the reason that water forms droplets. So does this just happen for water? Well, no, it actually happens in a lot of liquids, even metals when they're in liquid form. Uh, and there's a great picture in figure six of your handout, which shows a bar of tungsten sitting on liquid mercury. Now, tungsten is more dense than mercury, so, so you'd expect it to sink, but the surface tension of mercury means that it, it actually takes quite a bit of force to push the tungsten through the surface. Now, different liquids will have different surface tensions depending on the strength of the intermolecular forces between the molecules. And there's an exercise you can do in the handout if you're interested in learning more. There's also some discussion questions along with further resources and videos. So you can learn more about this really quite fascinating phenomenon. I'd encourage you to look at these videos because the wonder in surface tension really does come from seeing it in the real environment. 
I've told you what goes on at the particle level, so now go and have a look at what we see with our eyes. There's also a great experiment you can do to see surface tension in action yourself, which I've detailed in the handout, and it uses water, soap and pepper. Okay, so that's it for today's episode of the Chemistry at University podcast. Uh, now, there are a lot of additional resources for this episode, more so than usual, so I'd highly encourage you to have a look at these on the PDF handout. Uh, now, I just want to pick up on something that you, you've seen throughout the series, which is the discussion questions in the handouts. Now, at many universities, you'll, you'll learn the subject through tutorials, which are small group discussions where you explore concepts in more depth. I have designed all of these additional discussion questions for you so that they, they read like tutorial questions where you can discuss them with either a teacher or an advanced level knowledge of chemistry to, to, to really explore the subject more. Uh, additionally, you, you can also discuss these questions with another student and you can then find the answers yourselves. Uh, they're often contained in the additional videos and websites that I link and if not, then a quick Google search should satisfy your curiosity. However, the key point of these questions is to get you talking about chemistry and to get you thinking about how we use it to solve problems. The key skill of a chemist is problem solving ability. So however you use these questions and whoever you use them with, make sure you think about them before you go straight and look up the answers. We'll pick up the second part of my interview with Professor Howard in the next episode. And in this episode, we'll discuss in, in more detail about how crystallography works, uh, the science behind it, and how we do these fascinating experiments. If you want to learn more about some cutting-edge physical chemistry work, then I would highly encourage you to listen to this episode. So thank you again for listening, and I hope to see you in our final episode, which is episode six. Thank you very much. <laughs>